If you have your Bible this morning, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we often, almost actually always, review our purpose at some point on Sunday morning. And the the top two, I'm going to come at them in reverse order for just a moment. We are living as a family of disciples, and that's, and that's true. And in a church family, there's always a lot going on. And uh, one of the things that went on this week is that Elaine's Rustan's dad, Carl Palmberg, passed away about a week ago. Um, now, next month will mark the, the ninth year since my dad passed away. And, you know, we, we say a phrase often, you know, well, when things like that happen, life goes on. And yes, it does. It does. Uh, but not quite the same. Not quite the same. Emmy Lou Harris has a line in one of her songs about the passage of time, which goes this way. With every turn... The world becomes a sadder place. And those of you who have lost parents and children, you recognize the truth in that line. With every turn, the world becomes a sadder place. A more joyful place in other ways, but inevitably, inevitably, loss and pain. And so just be remembering the Rustan family and the broader Palmberg family um, at this at at this time. The first thing we always mention are we are becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And Don already mentioned that the main way this happens is through interaction with the Word of God and the power of the Spirit. Um, this week I re rewatched an interview that uh, um, Al Mohler did like 14 years ago uh, with Leon Cass. Leon Cass is a uh, uh, was a bioethicist philosopher. Um, he was the head of the President's Council on bioethics for the Bush administration. Uh, So you may even recognize the name if you're old enough, from 2001 to 2006. But he spent most of his career teaching at the University of Chicago, and he taught mostly philosophy. But near the end of his career, after teaching um, Western philosophy for 20 years, he started to teach a class in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, uh, partially due to his own uh, Jewish background. And he made the comment to Moeller. He said that the book of Genesis contained as profound, if not more profound, answers to all of life's deepest questions than the entire Western tradition Combined, by which he meant Plato, Aristotle, and uh, and the group. Now that's a profound, profound idea statement. He's not an evangelical believer, and if you know anything about the University of Chicago, it is a place with uh, really absolutely no sympathy for biblical Christianity at all, especially in the religion and philosophy departments. There And yet Leon Cass makes a statement like that that I think is profoundly true. So uh, we'll come back to this in, in, in a moment. But as we uh, read Scripture together and interact with Scripture, you keep his voice in the back of your mind. You know, this really is. The perspectives in the material of the Bible, the most profound perspectives that you can find anywhere, in the world, and, uh, and it's our privilege to look into those together this morning. So let's stand together. Mark 9, 
11 to 13, and if those of you who are visiting, we're just making our way straight through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and Mark 9, 11 through uh, 13 is in part of the transition after what is called the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, uh, which has already been broadly referenced about three or four times in the song, The Days of Elijah. Uh, All kinds of images in that song are pulled straight out of uh, that text we looked at uh, just uh, two weeks ago or so, and now on verses 11 to 13. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer together. Father in heaven, we ask you to evaluate our lives because it's inevitable that you will, the psalmist says. May we be found as those who walk in our integrity, who trust in you, and by trusting in you, we don't stumble. So evaluate us, O Lord, test us, examine our hearts and our minds because we set you and your steadfast love before our eyes and we seek as your children to walk about in your faithfulness and in your truth. Father, we do not want to be at home and comfortable with men of emptiness and falsehood. And with those who are tricky and conceal the truth, we don't seek to travel. We, in fact, hate the congregation of those who love to do evil with the wicked. We are never completely at home. Lead us, Lord, to be those who wash our hands, relatively speaking, in innocence, and who build our lives all around your altars, ultimately all around the cross of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which we come to celebrate this morning, and which we've already been singing about this morning to cause us to sing with a great voice of your thanksgiving and to recount all of your wonders. Lord, we love the dwelling place of your house, the place of the dwelling of your glory. Do not gather us together with sinners when it comes to our souls, with men of blood. Don't gather up our lives, but rather keep us for yourself. For we've walked in our integrity, and you have redeemed us and been gracious to us. And Lord, we we mentioned the passing of a man that many in this congregation know, And know Carl to have been among those who were redeemed, among those who had found grace, 
favor in your sight by faith. Oh, Lord, may his family find great comfort in that position and in those truths as they remember him together uh, in these days of loss. Father, enable us to be those who stand on level ground. Lord, may we be among those gathered together who bless your name in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask for this to be given to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. A few weeks back, we were talking about uh, Bible reading plans and, uh, and mentioned two of them, one the discipleship journal plan and then the other one was the Robert Murray McShane plan, which is the more aggressive of the two. So the McShane plan takes a person through the Old Testament once, through the Psalms twice, and through the New Testament twice in a year. And if, and if that's your plan, if the McShane plan is your plan, then of the four chapters of the Bible that you will read today, one of them is Genesis 37. And in Genesis 37, uh, we meet Joseph. And what we're told about Joseph is that he was his father's favorite child. And uh, that his brothers did not appreciate that status all that much. That God sent Joseph some dreams that were fairly aggrandizing dreams for Joseph. And he was foolish enough to share these dreams, repeatedly in fact with his with his brothers and um, and they appreciated him even less after hearing about the dreams and then chapter 37 tells us that the brothers went out to tend their father's flocks together and after some delay Jacob decided to send Joseph out. Joseph had a history of sort of being Jacob's spy as to what the other brothers were back to, uh, up to. So he was the official tattletale of the family. Uh, Had a history of it, at least. And then Genesis 37 tells us that when Joseph went to where the brothers were supposed to be with their flock in Shechem, they weren't there. They weren't there. And he was standing in that field, and he didn't quite know what to do. And in Genesis 37.15, we read these striking words of Joseph. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pastoring the flock. And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Uh, What a pregnant little statement, right? A man found him. A man found him wandering in the field. Now in the moment, Joseph probably thought something like this. Well, this is how it goes with me, you know. The Lord is always taking care of me. I didn't quite know where to go and what to do. And so the Lord sends a man along. And now I know exactly where to go. Praise the Lord. Isn't it wonderful? 
And so, as the text says, he finds his brother, his brothers. But it's at that point that the plot thickens. Because they vacillate back and forth between killing him and selling him to traveling Ishmaelites as a slave. And they sell him. And so the next thing Joseph knows, he is a slave in Egypt trying to learn a new language far from home. And all of his expectations in life are dead and gone. And I have little doubt that he remembered many times in those opening months the man who found him in a field and sent him into this sort of of doom. But I'll tell you the one thing that he had no idea of in those early months in captivity as he looked around, and that was that he was still right in the center of God's plan. He was, but there's no way he could see it. There's no way he could even begin to imagine what God was up to. Now, I mention all of that because of the little phrase in our text for this morning. The mention in our present text here in Mark 9 of Elijah and the restoration of all things. That is, the sort of the second coming of Elijah, which Jesus makes plain to his disciples, John the Baptist. He says, yes, when Elijah comes, his coming will lead to the restoration of all things. Our text. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he asked this question. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he shall suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. Jesus says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And as part of that, his head was cut off at a birthday party by Herod at the whim of his stepdaughter. Do you see that it's not obvious at that moment that Elijah is part of restoring all things? as his head is paraded around on a platter at the party. But Jesus is still confident. No, no. Elijah did come. And they did to him whatever they wanted. But he did indeed come to be part of the process that leads to the restoration of all things. And that's at the heart of these three little verses, that that phrase. State our thesis for this morning this way. We are on the road 
to the restoration of all things through Christ. That's how Christian disciples think. We are on the road to the restoration of all things. No matter what seems to be happening in the moment, no matter where our culture is on any given day or year or decade, disciples are still supposed to be confident that we are on the road to the restoration of all things. For so Jesus has said, it is. Number one, four angles, we'll look at this this morning. We need to remember that there is a divine necessity in the world. Um, That's all captured in that tiny little word in the question. It's even a smaller word in Greek than it is in English, but we just skip right over the top of it. They asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Little word must. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now this is a really interesting moment because this is one of those places where Jesus and and, and and the scribes are absolutely on the same page together. Uh, That is, that Jesus is in complete agreement uh, with the scribes that Elijah, by which he means John the Baptist, that it was necessary for him to come first. And the New Testament makes a great deal of that, which is why when you plunge into Luke's gospel, what's the first thing recorded in Luke's gospel. Who are the first people you meet? John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And there's this long section introducing the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. And only then do you slip over and meet Mary and Joseph and the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ And even in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Elijah, definitely, right on the surface of things, he comes first. It had to be. It had to be. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? We've talked about this many times, a little Greek word, Day, just three little Greek letters. The first offering in the lexicon has divine necessity, and that's the sense that it has here in this context. Divine necessity. It is a divine necessity that Elijah comes first. Now that's a hint off into a broader view of the world that you find in the Bible. One that the average American hates from the center of their souls. But there it is all over the place in the New Testament. Among those who stated in its most striking, pithy forms is the Apostle Paul. Uh, One of the more famous of those is Ephesians 1.11, where God is described this way. So here's Paul's conception of God. He is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. Not quite a few things, uh, not a fair number of things, not key things, but all things. God is the one, we're told by Paul, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Uh, The whole 11th verse of Ephesians 1 reads this way. In him uh, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. Will. See, that's the worldview within which 
The scribes say that Elijah must come first, this divine necessity. It's not an Augustinian thing, ultimately. It's not a Calvinistic thing, ultimately. It's both of those things. But it's ultimately, it's those things by derivation. It's ultimately simply a biblical thing. It's just a biblical thing. This sort of divine necessity. Jesus tried to show us how comforting this should be to us and how we ought to pay attention to it in a way that is meant to be transformational of our daily experience. That's what Jesus was aiming at when he said in Matthew 10, 29 to 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. See, the one who works all things after the counsel of his will, yet keeps track of specific details, like when John the Baptist is born. And specific details like everything in your life. Like everything in your life. Because according to the opening chapters of Genesis, you being created in the image of God means everything in your life is quite a bit more significant in the created order than anything in a sparrow's life. That's his point. And he keeps track of the sparrows, so he certainly, he certainly keeps penetrating track of everything in your life. That's where we live. We live in this world where there's this thing called divine necessity always around us. We're constantly passing through it. The big picture of the reality with which or within which we live is that it's governed by the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. That's a profound, that's a profound reflection on life. Secondly, we need to remember that that divine necessity includes the restoration of all things. They asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Jesus says, I not only agree with the scribes at this point, but I'll tell you what this is about, this business of Elijah coming first. It is a piece in the chain that leads inexorably to The restoration of all things. Elijah does come first to restore all things. Now the prophecy from the Old Testament related to Elijah doesn't really go quite that far, though it's all about restoration for sure. Um, uh, Malachi. uh, Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you... Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. But utter destruction is not going to be the end of the world. Rather, the restoration of all things is going to be the end of the world. Because the ministry of Elijah, John the Baptist, and Jesus will ultimately prevail and have ultimately prevailed as we will see to the restoration of all things. 
Now, this is right on the surface of your Bible if you are just paying attention, which is why it's good to have a Bible reading plan and it's good to execute it year by year by year so that you become familiar and then you start to notice things like this, especially if you're, you know, paying attention to the text that they throw in the margins, you know. And so uh, Genesis 2, 9 and 10 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made a sp- uh, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the, for, to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And in Genesis 2, we meet Adam and Eve, and where are they? They are in paradise. They are in the Garden of Eden. By Genesis 3, at the end, they have been cast out of the Garden of Eden, and they are living in a cursed earth with cursed ground and with curses touching them deeply and individually. Curses that came directly from God. But then at the other end of the Bible, you get to Revelation 22. And what do you find? It opens this way. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb and through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side, the tree of life. So now we're back to the tree of life. And we're back to these rivers. And we're back to all manner of images that John is pulling right out of Genesis chapter 2. And what's he saying? The plan of God ends with the restoration of all things. There's ultimately a return to an Eden-like place. The Apostle Paul is making the same argument in the middle of Romans chapter 8 where he says, for the creation waits, this is verse 19, Romans eight nineteen, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the creation can't wait for believers to be resurrected from the dead. Well, why not? For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is, it eagerly waits for the fact that the entire creation order will experience something like a resurrection when we experience resurrection, which Jesus refers to here as the restoration of all things. Among the most prolific New Testament writers of the last generation, especially the last decade of the 20th century, the first two decades of the 21st century, is a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. There's a lot of strong opinions about him uh, amongst evangelicals. He downplays the concept of individual salvation coming to faith in a way that's not helpful and I don't think biblical either and so that's what we hold against him but he's quite a profound observer and one of the things that he says though to something like the evangelical community where he's very worth listening to is that the glory of the gospel is bigger than going to heaven when you die that's what I love about the gospel I go to heaven when I die he said, no, 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 no. He said, you ought, to love, you, ought to, you ought to love a lot more than that about the gospel because the glory of the gospel is not only do you go to heaven when you die, but at the end of the rage, you are resurrected into a new heaven and a new earth. The glory of the gospel is that it announces the restoration of all things. 
that God, who saw his creation order fall into sin and ruin, is going to restore the whole thing through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the gospel. He's right about that. And that's what Jesus is talking about right here. When he says, he agrees with the scribes on this, the restoration of all things. Elijah does come first to, the res- to restore all things, under the restoration of all things. Thirdly, we need to remember that the divine necessity includes the way of the cross. Verse 12, he said to them, Elijah comes first to restore all things. You know, we think, wonderful. Good news, I like that. Very, very good. Um, Very, very good. But then comes the question with the curveball in it. For he says, How is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now remember, we saw at the end of chapter 8, right? Peter does not like this kind of talk. Peter's just been up in the mountain. He's seen these glorious images of Jesus. He's been there with Moses and Elijah, and then the voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son, hear him, the other two guys disappear, Jesus alone is there, now we're talking, this is glorious, and here we are with Jesus coming back to all of this stuff about suffering many things and being treated with contempt. You remember back in 832, Peter took him aside and was rebuking him. Stop talking that way. Quit being negative, Ned. No. No. No, none of that. None of that. But in fact, of course, as it turns out, and as the New Testament makes plain, That suffering and death is an absolutely essential aspect of how it is that God restores all things. How can it be written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Say, well, where was that written? Well, we already had it read to us this morning. Almost certainly all the scholars agree on on this one. Um, uh, Jesus has in the back of his mind when he asks that question, Isaiah 53, 3. I'll read into it from verse 1, just like uh, uh, Jim did earlier in the service, but it's verse 3 that he has most prominently in his mind um, as he asks the question, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. Looks like the average guy, in other words. And now it gets worse. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Um, We don't like that. We don't like that at all. we We like one piece of the days of Elijah, to go back to our song, and not the other piece. Right? So the peace that we like is the Mount of Transfiguration peace. Elijah the victorious, Elijah the glorious, right? And so when Elijah and Moses and Jesus are on the mountain, remember uh, what Peter says, 
Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. All right. Rabbi, now you're talking. This is what we all signed up for. This is good stuff, wonderful stuff. Glad to be here. This is just magnificent. Just magnificent. And yet to come is, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, suddenly looking around. Jesus alone. All right, good. Majesty, glory, success, prominence, prominence, the winning team. But then, so how is it written? Of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And in part four, we go to the rest of the story about Elijah. Because he fits in here really, really nicely. And I hadn't really noticed so much in that, in, in, in the song, that this part of Elijah is also in there with some promen, right? Famine and, and sword and all those things are referred to in the song, just like they are in the text of the Transfiguration. We need to remember that the divine necessity includes the checkered history of the godly. In other words, Elijah's own experience, right in the Old Testament, though it's pre-cross, it has a good taste of the way of the cross in it, in very prominent ways. Um, But I tell you that Elijah has come. He's talking of John the Baptist now. But he's also talking about the Elijah of the Old Testament because they overlap perfectly at this point. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So when you look in the, in the margin of the NH27, there you'll see in the margin references to two texts from Kings 19. First Kings 19. First Kings 19, 2. And then 1 Kings 19.10. Here's what it says in 1 Kings 19.2. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, Jezebel says, may God curse me if I don't kill you within the next 24 hours. He's just won this big thing. May God curse me if I don't kill you within the next 24 hours. And Elijah's off and running. And he runs for over a month. And then he comes to the cave that we talked about last week. 1 Kings 19.10. The Lord asks him what he's doing there. Here's Elijah's response. He said, I've been very very jealous for the Lord, for God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. (laughs) Elijah says, Lord, here's the report on my ministry, complete, total failure. Complete, total failure. Here's the conditions on the ground. They have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And I'm running from Jezebel and hiding like a chipmunk in a tree on this mountain. But I'm all you got left. Complete, 
total failure. It looks like a total, complete flop. And he's already pointed out with John the Baptist. It's so much hope for John, he might be the Messiah until they cut his head off at a birthday party. I kind of took care of that. What is all that? That's all the way of the cross that's always been there. And we as disciples, we're supposed to keep that in mind. Because we too are going to experience the way of the cross as well as the crown ultimately in the end. But much more up front, the way of the cross is still around. Jesus wasn't using the language accidentally when he talked about taking up your cross each day and following. Well, that means many, many, many things, but it means no pleasant things. That's an image to the difficulties in life, the hardships in life, the failures in life and ministry, and when everything seems to have gone all completely wrong, lay in the gutter dead. The way of the cross. Um, The cross leads and is a necessary part of reaching the crown. And this is the point in the Lord's Supper. They, They take... They, they, they travel together, right? They travel together so nicely. We see it every time we go to that passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, don't always point it out as clearly as I, as, as I should, uh, but, but I, will, I will today because that's uh, just where we are. So let me uh, reread you those familiar words. Uh, as the men can come and take their seats uh, in front. For I received from the Lord that which I have given to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was given over, he took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this For my remembrance. Now there's a reference to the cross. Likewise also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as ye drink it. For my remembrance. There's another reference to the cross. Clear. And then the final verse. For as often as you may eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or you announce or you declare the death of the Lord until he may come. There's the crown. There's the restoration of all things. They're tightly connected. Unbreakably connected. The way of the cross. The destination of the crown. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So that little phrase is meant for you and I to ask ourselves, are we new covenant people? Are you a new covenant person? That is, are you born again? Have you been born from above? Do you have a heart for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you looking to him for the forgiveness of your sins and nowhere else? Do you find in your heart a desire to please him and walk after him? Do you have a new spirit inside you? Do you have a new heart as... Jeremiah would describe it there in Jeremiah 31, 33. That's the background. That's the informing theology to that little phrase. The new covenant in my blood. If you do, 
the table is yours. You know, I ask, but I've been sinning. Yes, of course you have. And you, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you honestly say, well, though I want to go to heaven and I don't really care about any of that. Well, then you, you haven't participated in the new covenant in his blood. And the table's really not for you. It's for the people of God. It's for those who have something of the new covenant in his blood. But you can have it this day. You can have it at any moment. You can have it. You just reach out and ask for it. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Now, believing is trust, and trust is obeying, and obeying is following. That's all built into that one little word. You can't just... It's a little advertisement for coming on Sunday nights, where you'll find in the book of Deuteronomy. When you hear, you're doing a lot more than hearing. You're hearing and believing and trusting and obeying. It's all compressed into that. And, and, and Moses makes that crystal clear in the book of Deuteronomy. You, 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 you hear so as to do, so as... And on it goes. Actually, I skipped one. To hear so as to keep, so as to do. He loves that little triad. To hear so as to keep, so as to do. New covenant thinking, new covenant living. But for those of you who have a part in the table, this morning take heart with the fact that what he means until he comes, until we show forth the Lord's death, until the restoration of all things, that's literally your destiny. The restoration of all things, new heaven, new earth, through Christ. Men would stand, we'll ask the Lord's blessing upon the bread. Father, we thank you that you didn't spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all, and that always with him, you will freely give us all things. We thank you, Lord for your broken body, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.